Professor Allen's Comics Reading Journal for the month of July 2023. Welcome to episode 98 of this podcast series, a.k.a. the penultimate episode of this podcast series. The concept of the show is to just have a brief chat about what comics I've read since the last time we've had one of these brief chats, which should make this pretty much, though not precisely, all the comics I read during July. These books are listed weekly in blog posts at eyesandearsblog.blogspot.com, and I regularly repost them on my Facebook and Twitter so you can find those. But those posts are not spoilers for this podcast, since those are just lists. And here, we'll have a little more review, a little more critique, and a little more discussion. But first, a little more feedback. Sir Dr. Ange had some things to say. Sounds like a great month. And given that Frank Thorne read Sonia didn't crack your best of the month list, you know you are reading quality books. That Supergirl story in Adventure Comics 381 is a semi-big deal. That was our first issue headlining the book after being in the backup in Action Comics for nearly a decade. She was finally a leading character. Plus, that issue includes her teaming up with Batgirl, a partnership that didn't happen as often as you might think. Great issue. And I'm glad you read The Chaken Shadow. That was the book that introduced me to him, and I loved it immediately. For one, you could tell just from the twists and turns of the plot, as well as the dialogue, that Chaken expects a lot out of the readers. Second, the whole man-out-of-time aspect of how a man from the 30s would view things in the 80s really grabbed me as well. It would be interesting for you to know that Harlan Ellison hated this book and was pretty vocal on how much he disliked Chaikin's take, leading to a long feud between the two. Sort of surprised this didn't crack the top of your list either. Yes, Doc, I know. My tastes are mysterious, my friend. Mysterious and unpredictable. Both Manuel Carmona and C.L. Zeno thanked me for talking positively about their recent comic, The Evandrus Theory. You're very welcome, gentlemen. And social media support for last episode came from Talia Keats, English professor Jared Keane, the Hither Came Conan podcast, Chris, from Professor Frenzy, which I have on good authority, is still a show. Sir Manuel Carmona. Evan Bevins, Asterix 51. Robert Ludwig, the most sane man among us. In the morning, Robert. The fabulous Keith G. Baker. Bill at Spy Vinyl. Bill from the Batpod. My comic book collection, Sir I Was Joe. Jeremiah Jones Goldstein. Sir Luke Giaconetti. Chris Lydon 7. Podcastings, Michael Bailey, and the kind and lovely Sutherlands from the Rad Adventures Network. And now, on to the books I read last month, and as we do on this show, I'm categorizing the books that I read. And first up are those 
that I read specifically for podcast appearances, the homework books for the upcoming Quarterbin 196. I read Marvel Triple Action 35. And for the next Doom Speak, I read Doom 2099, 30, and 31. And also, it's not one I'm going to be covering precisely, but I will use 2099 The World of Doom Special as a resource guide for upcoming Doom 2099 episodes over at Doom Speak. For an upcoming recording over on the Fortress of Baileytooth, I read the start of one of JMS's excellent series, Rising Stars 1 through 12. And sort of a follow-up to our free comic book day episode of the quarter bin, I found another two issues from that event at the free table at Laughing Ogre here in Columbus, DC Night Terrors, and Seismic Stories from Aftershock. I gotta say, the DC book was a bit disappointing for me. Ten pages of decent prequel story about bad dreams, that's fine. But then filling the book with just the covers for more than a dozen of the issues in the event? I don't know. Maybe it's just because I'm not a big art guy, but that seemed like space that just could have been used better. Seismic Stories, on the other hand, gave us four pages related to the next Animosity series, and then a long stretch from their upcoming The Darkness We Brought Back as a standalone free preview issue. That one was much more enjoyable. And another follow-up, this one of the most recent quarter bin, I read New Adventures of Superboy 34 to get a lead-in to the stories that we covered on that episode, and then also 36 and 37 to get more of the very enjoyable Dial H storyline. And yet again, I'm not sure how this happened, another Quarterbin follow-up. An issue I picked up from Pulp Reality recently, the next issue of a past Quarterbin book from Hot Comics, Gods for Hire number 2, a color comic from 1986. That was a pretty standard super team type of story. Not bad, especially for a very, very independent book. In comics, I read to listen along with podcasts. There are getting to be a good number of these most months because thank you, DC Infinite App, and thank you, DC Comics-themed podcasters. For listening along with Laurel, a.k.a. Mountain Flower and her crew, on episodes 206 and 207 of Feathers and Foes, I read Birds of Prey 8 and 9 from the New 52 era, I'm starting to think that this storyline might never actually, uh, what's the phrase, make any sense. Though I did like the Court of Owls crossover in issue 9. And to follow along with the latest episode of the Overlooked Dark Knight hosted by podcasting's Michael Bailey and Northern Chancer Andy Leyland, I read Batman 336. And to follow along with Billy D's excellent show, the Brave and the Bob, episodes 26 and 27. I read Brave and the Bold 79 and 103. Issue 79 is a dead man story very early in his history. And 103 features the Metal Men, one of those Silver Age concepts that I love, but even back then felt a little dated 
And that was more than 50 years ago. And then on to new comics that we read right off the shelves, and we do have one of the digital variety, thanks to the Hoopla digital app, available through many public libraries. House of Slaughter 15, which reveals some inter-house struggles, teasing some future inner-house warfare. Intriguing. And we move on to the general comic reading that I did. Sir Manuel of Truthful Comics in a Christmas Package, and I'm still working my way through that. And I read Venom, Sinner Takes All, number one. Nice to have a first issue of the miniseries. It's a case of Venom versus the Sin Eater. Good story. And the start of an interesting backup miniseries about a group called The Jury, which was interesting because on the exact day that I read this, I actually got my summons to jury duty, which, as this episode is released, would have been last week. And I did struggle mightily that first day, deciding whether I should go to my first day of jury duty in a Justice League t-shirt or Dr. Doom t-shirt. I just didn't know which the appropriate message was that I wanted to convey. Eventually, I settled on a boring polo shirt. Manuel also sent a long run from 1990 or so, DC's Captain Adam, 37 through 47. This is a character that, more or less, generally speaking, I'm kind of lukewarm towards. And the writer for most of these, Carrie Bates, is generally someone who I think of as a fine, workmanlike professional. But not spectacular, not one of my top favorites, but just solid. But for whatever reason, I think that Bates did some excellent work in these issues, which just totally took me by surprise. These stories go so many different places, like literally so many places. A team up with Superman, which was pretty good. A trip to Purgatory, which was also pretty good. He went to Cambodia for an issue and battled Necron in a few. I found the vast majority of these to be very readable, and I know that sounds like faint praise, and maybe it is, but remember, the thing about faint praise, it is praise. For music, you might say something is easy listening. For these, as comics, they were easy reading. And a bunch from Sir Iowa's Joe, starting with Epic Kill number two, which despite being a number two, did not have me feeling lost. I had questions, but that's different from being lost. An 18-year-old samurai-trained super warrior is hunting for the president, and he is also hunting for her. Much to the chagrin of the military squads looking for her, the president actually joins the hunt himself. He survives, but most of the troops do not. Lots of questions and an interesting action-packed story. And from Kieran Gillen, the gaming-themed Die, 16 and 17, wherein in these issues the squad goes up against some Lovecraftian eldritch monsters. 
He also sent a Xenoscope book from a few years ago, Robin Hood, Voodoo Dawn. Our heroine goes up against, well, it's kind of right there in the title, a voodoo practitioner. He is mad at her, and well, she ends up mad at him, so it all works out. A good one-off special story. And also from the same publisher, Van Helsing Steampunk, I still appreciate the steampunk aesthetic, recognizing that it has faded in popularity in the uh, general audience, and the general geek audience, but I still dig it. And our lead hero here, Liesel Van Helsing, just rocks the look from the fishnets all the way up to the top hat and goggles. And when you throw in monster hunting and a crossbow gun, I find that I cannot say no. Good story, and I realized right then that I needed to look for some more Van Helsing. Which drove me to Hoopla, and from there I read Liesel's first miniseries, Helsing 1-4. through Liesel is already a skilled vampire hunter, and also coming out of a long relationship with Hades, actual Hades, King of the Underworld. But when she gets her hands on a missing journal of her father Abraham Van Helsing, her life gets even more complicated. My favorite bit in here was a scene where she was looking for the journal in an antiquarian bookstore, which is where three vampire ladies find her, and as part of the battle, she tips over a bookcase on the vampire lasses. And I read this just a day after visiting M at the book loft. And I ended up feeling really bad for the bookstore employee after that scene. I even showed that panel to M, and they were indecisive, unsure whether killing the vampires was worth tipping over an entire bookcase of books. Now, this is probably the best time I'll ever get to tell this story about Xenoscope from this most recent free comic book day. Mrs. Quarterbin was with me, and when we were at Crazy Comics, I spent a few minutes in the back where the dollar boxes were marked down to 50 cents, and she was in the front of the store. After her brother nabbed their free books, she browsed that small area. And when I came out, she was staring at a Xenoscope trade on a display area, Grimm's fairy tale book. And of course, Xenoscope is probably known most for their cover art, the pinup style gals with the cheesecake factor cranked up to 9 or 10, sometimes 11. Now the first thing Valerie wondered was if this was a take on Wonder Woman, an alternate version. First, big credit to her for knowing about alternate dimensions and all of that. But no, I told her, it's a different company, a different character. In her defense, it was the Camelot storyline, and the character on the cover does look a bit like Wonder Woman. Then, I was stammering out something about pinup style and good girl art. Valerie takes another close look and says something like, I love her outfit, or she looks great. Whatever her exact words were, it was a true statement. I was just kind of surprised at her take. It just goes to show that you never know what someone's 
reactions are going to be to the things we read. And from Tom Panneris of Pop Culture Affidavit, The Adventures of Jerry Lewis 86, which I gotta say, is not bad at all. Between Lewis and Bob Hope, I've probably read six or eight issues of these, and this one may have been the best. The story is King Kong, with Jerry in the role of Fay Ray, which I know sounds strange. It helped that the bits of humor interspersed throughout the issue were actually humorous more often than not. And from the dollar box at Crazy Comics, I mentioned them before, that's crazy with a K and two Zs, because comics. From there, I picked up Alien Legion, One Planet at a Time, book one, from Epic Comics, written by the outstanding Chuck Dixon. What I liked about this was that it wasn't a sci-fi book first, and they just were trying to tell a war story within that. It was, first and foremost, a war book. The focus was on organization, tactics, weapons, all that stuff that Chuck Dixon does really well. And the sci-fi elements were built on top of that strong foundation. I hadn't read Alien Legion before and found that this was a pretty good issue. From Pulp Reality, two complete storylines in Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., 12 through 14, and then 38 through 41. We start with the three-part Hydra affair from Bob Harris. Good story about the smoking hot Madam Hydra and her attempts to please her master, the Yellow Claw, by eliminating Fury and thus hobbling S.H.I.E.L.D., but spoilers... That all doesn't work out in her favor. Although, spoilers, she does get away clean. The four-part The Cold War of Nick Fury was a hit-and-miss story, filling in some holes in Fury's uh, biography between the end of WW2 and his taking over S.H.I.E.L.D. Interesting story of intrigue and spycraft, but not quite as good as that Hydra story. Also from Pulp, from a title I bought too late to include last month in Adventure Month. From now comics, Tales of the Green Hornet 1 through 4. Full color comics from 1992. Standalone stories, which is always a good thing. They were very consistent in maintaining the public image of Green Hornet as an unloved vigilante, perceived by the public and the police alike as the bad guy. I like that. Decent artwork, good characters, and good enough stories. And from the cheap bins at World's Greatest Comics from 1991, the Mature Readers mini, Mr. E, one through four, which was just weird. Remember that brief window at DC when Tim Hunter was going to be a really, really big deal in the mystical corner of the DCU right around Books of Magic. That's a bit of critical information for reading this book, and I have to say that divorced from that context, it's just not a series that worked for me. I like that corner of the DCU, and maybe if I'd been into it at the time, maybe I would have liked it then. But now, with Tim Hunter more or less 
faded away into the mysterious mists of mystical time. It was just kind of meh. I'm not sure where I got this next one from. Manuel sent a lot in from this character, so he's a, a strong candidate. But I'm not sure for sure who sent in this issue from Marvel Edge, Doctor Strange, Sorcerer Supreme 84 from 1995. This is right in the heart of the 90s, which for me can be a warning sign. But DeMattis and Mark Buckingham delivered a solid story of Strange, as usual, dealing with his shortcomings, his faults, and his mistakes. And wrapping up a series I've been reading a while via Hoopla, the Azzarello and Risso story that is not 100 Bullets. Moonshine, 23 through 28. This is the Prohibition era story with the slight little minor addition of werewolves and a little voodoo-like magic thrown in there as well. And like any good gangster story, it ends with a hail of bullets. Let me rephrase that. It ends with hails and hails and hails of bullets. It ends with finality. I give the series credit for that. And with some justice being delivered to the bad guys, who aren't just the werewolves either. I enjoyed this mix of period crime story and the supernatural elements. It's mature in the blood and boobies way, but tells a good story with good characters, and this doesn't always happen, a satisfying ending. I mentioned last time that there is a character that I will be reading a bunch of over the next few months because I will be presenting at the Spider-Man conference at Bowling Green in September. So I plan to flip through a ton of Spidey comics, and some I will even read, such as these trades that I read during jury duty. Let me clarify that I read while I was in the jury waiting room. Just to clarify. Amazing Spider-Man 6 through 10, Sin's Rising Prelude, and 44 through 47. These are all modern numbering. Not from the original run. Don't be deceived by the low numbers. These are not Lee and Ditko. They are Nick Spencer and a variety of artists. The first bunch told an interesting story involving the return of the legendary Thieves Guild, who have announced their return by stealing bits and pieces of gear from each of the heroes, including, in Spidey's case, his web shooters. Fortunately, he has a connection with the guild, an inn, in the form of his on-again, off-again girlfriend, Felicia Hardy, the black cat. Now, in his civilian life, Pete and MJ are in an on-again phase of their relationship, which makes things a bit awkward for Mary Jane. Fortunately, she has recently discovered an anonymous support group for civilians whose lives are impacted by their relationships with heroes, which is a great concept. The second trade features the Sin Eater, a character that certainly has some interesting elements for me, taken from a, a darkness to light perspective. But as stories, I preferred the earlier ones more, though, the Black Cat issues. 
and then some kids' books that I read mostly from Pulp Reality, some from Sir Rob Lance and others. Betty and Veronica 9-11, through 11, Laugh Comics Digest 32, Archie Comics Digest 252, Jughead with Archie Digest 21, Everything's Archie 45, Life with Archie 52, and Richie Rich Success 53. Here is your regular reminder that Archie Digests make excellent packing material, like these ones from Ron Sadowski. Since we only had one non-Archie title in this section this time, I do want to give Richie Rich his moment in the sun, that poor little rich boy. In addition to a 15-page story about, of course, about crooks breaking into the manor, we also had Richie discover a mirror civilization of tiny people. And seeing as I was reading Tarzan and the Ant-Men at exactly the same time that I read this issue, it was definitely a strange confluence. Which means that it's time to take a break here, and when we come back we'll talk about all the seasonal reading that I did during July. Sawate. My name is Stella, and I am the host of Backroll to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Backroll to Oracle is a podcast dedicated to Barbara Gordon, the first woman to hold the mantle of Backroll for an extended period of time, roughly 1967 to 1988. The goal of Backroll to Oracle is to examine the character's history from her first appearance as Backroll and continuing through her tenure as Oracle. Each episode looks at a vintage issue of Detective Comics or Batman, as well as other books like Justice League and Freedom Fighters, and modern issues of Batgirl and Birds of Prey. I also keep track of news involving Batgirl and other members of the Bat family, and I have a revolving series of segments like Babs in the Tube, which highlights appearances of Babs in TV and film, Shipper Spaway, which looks at a variety of comic and pop culture couples, gives their history and determines whether they are hot or not, Reading with Stella, which could be described as an audio drama, or just me reading a book that relates to Babs or doesn't, and of course, the mainstay literature recommendation. I have been blessed to interview writers Scott Beatty and Chuck Dixon on their backroll year one work, Brian Q. Miller on his backroll run, Dwayne Swarzynski and Christy Marks on their separate Birds of Prey work, and the creators and actors of the backroll spoiled the web series. I hope to interview more creators and actors in the future. My goal, most importantly, is to make a fun, entertaining, and thoughtful show that people enjoy and from which they learn. Find the show online at thebatmanuniverse.net and iTunes, and follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Batgirl to Oracle. Thank you, and fly on, Babs lovers. And we're back to talk about seasonal reading, which for July means hashtag Western Comics Month. And no, 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 no Archie books. I think it's possible. I've exhausted all the Archie Western books in prior Julys. So, in approximate alphabetical order, we have one that was a weird mix of traditional Western and wildly non-traditional Western. Above Snakes, one through five, from Image from last year. We have a man named Dirt who is out to avenge his wife's killer on the frontier in 1866. So far, so good. 
but the color palette is a wild mix of pinks and yellows and greens, which puts it out on its own. There's also a bit of weird Western happening as Dirt is guided by a talking, bloodthirsty vulture. Because that happens. It is weird, and it took me a full issue to get into the colors and the overall vibe of this. It is different. It is non-traditional. But even so, I think I liked it more than I expected. I bought a bunch of discounted trades last year from SourcePoint Press, and one of those was this collection, Apocalypse Girl 1-6 through from 2020. And this is totally Les Garner, whose work I was not familiar with. Written, penciled, inked, lettered, and colored by Les L. Garner. And we've all read comics that are totally one-person productions, And we've all had the thought, maybe you should have brought in an inker, or a letterer, or a colorist, you know, whatever it is, whatever the the weak point of the issue is. But I have to say that this was solidly small press professional. I saw maybe three or four spelling issues, like lettering issues, but other than that, nothing stood out to me in the negative way. Now this is the genre that might be called secondary Western or modern Western. From the title, Apocalypse Girl, you can tell that this is a post-apocalyptic tale. But it has the elements of a classic Western. Desolate locales, a church community, a saloon-slash-brothel, and a lead character with a big gun and a cool hat. As the issues go on, we learn the science fiction background of the story, the supernatural experiments gone wrong, which is what makes the Apocalypse Girl, the character, such a powerhouse. Good story, satisfying ending, and like I said, for a one-man operation out of a small press, kudos. Good work, Les Garner. And from another very small press, this one, Beckett Comics from 2004, The Ballad of Sleeping Beauty, 1, 2, 4, 5, and 6. I know I wish I could have found 3 as well. This is a genre mashup of Western and, well, pretty much fable. It is a take on that Sleeping Beauty, where a girl is cursed so that when she turns 18 and falls asleep, she will not awake and her entire town will also slumber. One young man wants to find the town and rescue the sleeper, and he partners up with Cole, a much more grizzled veteran of all things Western. He is on the run after seeking vengeance on the man who killed his wife, except that the gentleman upon whom he wreaked his vengeance is not exactly the right man. It's a cool setup, good story and art, High-quality production. The only drawback is the story doesn't end here after six issues, so I don't know the ending, and given the title and the publisher, I don't know if I ever will. Hashtag frowny face. From DC, around 2007 or so, the complete story 
of Batlash 1 through 6. Sergio Aragones is involved in writing this, but it's definitely not funny. It's a sincere frontier western. Young Bartholomew Lash courting the daughter of a prominent town official who is not uh, favorably disposed towards Bat and his family, especially his Mexican mother. Fortunately, the Lashes are friends of the natives, and they work together to keep each other safe from those prominent town officials. From there, of course, things go sideways. Good stuff. I enjoyed seeing Bat as a young man here. I tend to associate him with being an older gentleman, uh, more established. So yeah, I enjoyed this, a pretty straight Western story. From Humanoids, translated from the French, Alejandro Yadorovsky's Bouncer, Volume 2 and 3. Bouncer is a one-armed tough guy, mostly working as a, well, a bouncer and a gunslinger, and occasionally, pardon the pun, bouncing around to other jobs. It's interesting to get a view of the American West from outside the U.S. Issue 3 was really good, I thought, combining lots of lost love, frontier justice, the role of the executioner in frontier justice, and terrible acts of injustice, grim and gritty, with a realistic art style. That one in particular was excellent. And from Kirk Spencer, one that came via a crowdfunding effort, Dead End Moon, number one, starring the smoking hot lady bounty hunter Maggie Dean, who has the misfortune of being able to interact with the ghosts of all the folks she has uh, dispatched over the years. Her most recent bounty sends her to the City of Gold, which is not as cool or lucrative as it sounds. And doing what she does, she ends up having to leave town in a hurry, accompanied by a woman she's rescuing and one of those ghosts. Dramatic story, great setup. And also, from Kirk via crowdfunding, El Cabron Pistolero, zero and one. This is the story of a guy in a big hat with a big gun, seeking vengeance and rooting out bad guys. Yes. Some are demonic-type monstrous bad guys, but still, it is the basic elements of a classic Western. The art style was a little too scratchy and unfinished for my personal preferences, but the character is quite compelling. Good choices here. Thank you, Kirk. Another from SourcePoint Press, the OGN Go West written by the very appropriately named Garrett Gunn. It takes place in the future of 2136, 40 years after the war. But with the exception of motorcycles and a few automatic weapons, everything else, again, says Western, the frontier location, the lead character who just wants to be left alone, the vengeance quest, the saloon, the posse, all of that is there. It's a simple story, simply told, maybe 60, 70 pages of story. Quick read, and not a bad reading experience. 
And another OG, and this one a lot longer, 200 plus pages, The Guns of Shadow Valley. And westerns fall into two broad categories, straight westerns, with no spiritual or weird element. And well, those that do contain elements like that. And that, the second kind, is what this one is. It's a weird western. In this, a variety of western characters are impacted by the presence of the ghost tribe, who have been in the valley far longer than any other of the residents, including the other tribes. They have a a ghostly spiritual connection to the land, and the valley often rises up to protect them. They are also shapeshifters, giving them the ability to protect themselves and their land from anyone moving in. It's really good. The mix of weird and traditional Western, I think, really works in this one. It all fits. And another of the many on this list that are cross-genre scenarios, this one combines Western and modern supernatural fantasy. Uh, Whatever you want to call that, it's a property I'm sort of a sucker for. Though I haven't read this main title in more than a decade or two in none of the expanded universe stories, but I figured that this month, Gunslinger Spawn 1-14 through would be a reasonable place to start. Taking place over the last 140 years or so, We get the story of a man with a strange connection to animals who gets himself roped into the battle between heaven and hell. Our hero, so to speak, does have a great hat and some pretty awesome guns, so it works. He also has an 1880s approach, or vibe, fitting of the Western character. Not bad, all things considered. And a classic. Pulp Hero, presented here by Gold Key Comics. The Lone Ranger, Golden West. Five good-sized stories in this extra-length issue. We had everything we needed to make for good Lone Ranger stories. Silver, Tonto, a few helpless people needing help, a few people who misunderstand the Ranger, and why he wears a mask if he's a good guy. The only thing missing, and I hope that future digital takes on this character will fix this glaring oversight, but no William Tell Overture. How can you call yourself a Lone Ranger comic without that, I ask you? And a take on the same character from the excellent Chuck Dixon, the Lone Ranger Snake of Iron, 1-4 through from Dynamite, from about a decade or so ago. In this, the ranger and Tonto are on the case of a series of tribes heading for a confrontation in Texas, all of whom blame recent sightings of the ghost horse, an animal legend, for bringing them to the precipice of war. But things are not as they seem, and when a nosy Midwestern reporter shows up and a train gets stuck in the winter snow, a train carrying a young native boy to be civilized back east, things go from bad to worse. It's an excellent, tightly plotted story. Very enjoyable. The only thing I think this one lacked, that's right, the William Tell Overture. (laughs) 
from Charlton, Outlaws of the West from 1966, which I picked up from Out of the Bins at Crazy Comics. This tells an almost full-issue story of the historical Younger Gang, who terrorized small towns on the post-Civil War West, teaming up with Jesse and Frank James for a bit, and eventually, spoilers, being caught and sentenced to life in prison, their guilty pleas enabling them to avoid being hanged. In the OGN, Pulp, by Brubaker and Phillips, and I hear you. Isn't Pulp a very different genre from Western? Well, I mean, yes. The lead character in this, Max Winters, is a writer of Western pulps in the late 1930s. But he's an older gentleman, and his stories are based on his own past as a bad dude in the 1890s West. And as he hears of a local group supportive of Nazis, raising money for them, he decides that maybe he's ready for one last robbery. Great idea. And it's Brubaker and Phillips. So I don't need to tell you this, but it's really, really good. A couple of coverless, ratty issues, courtesy of World's Greatest Comics, 50 cents each, Rawhide Kid 47 and Two Gun Kid 114. A couple of workmanlike Larry Lieber stories. Solid, straight westerns. I like the two-gun kid story more. It involved him being talked into or tricked into a boxing match with a big guy called Goliath. Though I didn't love his story, Rawhide Kid is a good character. The innocent man on the dusty road is a fugitive, trying to help people and do good as he also tries to clear his name. And one more from Source Point Press. It's a borderline western, admittedly more of a crime story. Seis Suertas, one through three. That stands for six strings. This takes place in Mexico, and it appeared from the cover to be more of a frontier-type story than it turned out to be. It's actually modern, uh, more of a drug cartel story. But there are the appropriate resonances to Western stories. A hero from the street arises. A man who has literally never slept a moment in his life. We never get an explanation for that, but it does give him a bit of a mystery. He wears a bulletproof suit reminiscent of the mariachi look and a weaponized sombrero. That's right. He has a super-powered sombrero. It's a wild story, good crime fiction, a mix of old-fashioned elements and a modern plot. Good job from creators Anthony Rea and Benito Gallego. And at this point in the episode, nearly 45 minutes in, Sir Luke must be asking himself whether I sought out any books this month from the public domain, which is loaded with Golden Age and some Silver Age Western comics. Well, I'm not saying that I purposely selected a title from the Digital Comics Museum that would land here at the very end of the alphabetical list. But hey, that is where Western thrillers 
one through three ended up. These are from Fox Features from 1948-49. The first issue focuses on lady outlaws, such as Two-Gun Sal and the Stryker Sisters, and that was clearly the best of these three issues. Another good story was the one where a guy is the spitting image, the doppelganger of a wanted man, and he ends up on the run. Issues two and three also had pretty decent stories featuring the tumbleweed kid. And all right, that was a solid collection of Western comics, I thought. Next month is another fun genre. As for August, we'll do some hashtag Jack Kirby Comics Month reading, featuring stories by the man who is a genre all to himself. However, July is not just the month for Westerns. It's also the month of Independence Day, a.k.a. the Brexit we all got behind. So related to that, I read Walt Disney's Showcase 34, Paul Revere's Ride, featuring Johnny Tremaine, sent in a while back by Sir Rob Lance. This is April 1775, the midnight ride that warned the Minutemen of Lexington and Concord that the British were coming, including the shot heard around the world. USA, USA, USA. And I had a couple issues in the stack of the number one patriotic here, of course, Captain America 601 and Annual 10. The Annual was a Hydra story with some Serpent Society stuff happening in the background. Issue 601 was a really good issue with guest penciler Gene Colan telling the World War II story from Bastogne, Belgium, when the Allied forces took the town only to learn that it had been overrun by vampires led by barren blood. Man, I wish I'd stayed awake that day in history class. And also, July is the heart of the summer, so I have a few specific summer-themed issues to talk about as well. The Impossible Man Summer Vacation Spectacular number 2 from 1991. As a character interacting with heroes in the Marvel U in a normal quote-unquote comic, Impy very rarely works for me. But here, where it is really just him, and he bumps into the Marvel U in passing, it can work. And this one, I was surprised too, was pretty funny. There is a plot holding it all together, which doesn't really matter, other than it serves as an excuse for Impy to bounce all around the Marvel U. My favorite bit was when he spends a day in the Savage Land and wonders why the long-haired blonde guy doesn't just use his quantum bands to save the day. Quantum bands? Quantum bands? I'm Kazar, not Quasar! And I laughed and laughed, and I hope that Gene Hendricks does as well. In Pep Digital 99, Betty and Veronica Swimsuit Special. Last month, I talked about how Archie got 100 pages out of the genre of lifeguard stories. 
And so it's not a surprise that they could get more than 200 pages. With many, many more left on the cutting room floor out of the genre of swimsuit stories. Of course. One common theme is Veronica trying to buy the best, the most expensive, most fashionable swimsuits, while Betty's homemade versions are even nicer. Another was the joke of the gals differentiating between swimsuits for looking great on the beach versus swimsuits to, you know, actually go swimming in. As a man who has been married three and a half decades, I was familiar with that situation. One exact plot and punchline repeated, and from what I could research, they seem to be from about 15 years apart. In each of these different separate stories, Veronica is jealous of Betty's amazing new swimsuits, which she got to keep after being a catalog model for the swimwear company. Veronica immediately demands that her father hire her at one of his companies to do modeling, and since fashion marketing is always a few seasons ahead, she ends up modeling in one issue, winter coats, and in the other, a full Mrs. Santa outfit. And I think that's everything. In terms of my favorite reads of the month, there were some interesting Captain Adam issues. I really enjoyed Steampunk Van Helsing. The Hydra storyline from Nick Fury was good. In terms of westerns, I dug Chuck Dixon's Lone Ranger Mini. And I can't believe I'm saying this, but the Impossible Man special wasn't too bad either. But in terms of my absolute favorite, I'm going to pick a western issue, specifically the Brubaker and Phillips OGN Pulp. My favorite read of the month. Like I said before, next month, the last episode ever of this podcast will feature some Jack Kirby books, as well as, I imagine, some more Xenoscope. But other than that, who knows? And whatever I do end up reading, I will be here to cover those books that I read during August on what will be, if I haven't mentioned this before, the final episode of the Comics Reading Journal, which should be out in early September. Feel free to let me know what you think of this episode, what you think of any of these books that I mentioned. You can send that feedback via email at relativelygeeky at gmail.com or as a comment on the Facebook or blog post for the episode, the blog is at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com you can follow the network on Twitter at relatively underscore geek. And, of course, the network has its own page on Facebook as well. Come join us. All are welcome. Thanks for listening, and keep the pages turning.